This is the Criterion Cast, episode 177. We're recording this on Friday, October 14th. I'm Ryan Gallagher, and joining me tonight to discuss the Georges Franju film Eyes Without a Face, I have a very special guest, West Anthony. Hey, West. Wait a minute. We're not talking about Face Off? <laughs> well, we can we can get to Face Off a little bit later, perhaps. All right, we'll talk about the French film, too. <laughs> Hello, everybody um, out there in podcast land. It's great to be back on the Criterion cast. Yes, it's been too long, West, since you've been on our show. Before we get into discussing the film, I just wanted to chat with you a little bit about what you're working on these days, because... Uh, it's been so long since you, I think, you know, probably the last time you were on here, you, you know, the auteur cast was probably still going on at that point. And, uh, since then you have now gone and created what has to be something that has been kind of percolating in your, your, your brain for years now, but a, an entire podcast dedicated to your one true love film music. Uh, yeah, it's not my well, it's one of my one true loves. I've I've quite a few one true loves actually, but this is a big one because you know I I love film, and I love music, and so this is you know the, my my show is actually just a, an ideal way to combine those two things. Uh, the show is called Musical Notation with West Anthony, um, and it's available uh, uh, wherever fine internets and smoked meats are sold. Um, it's also part of the uh, Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. And um, yeah, I've been going since uh, January, and that seems to be uh, gradually picking up steam. Uh, people are, are uh, getting on board and, and listening to it, and they seem to be enjoying it. So that's uh, good news for me. Well, everyone that I know who listens to it loves it. It is short and sweet and uh, a whole lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks very much. Yeah, I just uh, I try to keep it keep it going. Uh, yeah, I, I do try to keep it brief, too. That, that's... Partly because it's it's kind of nice to leave people wanting more instead of you know maybe uh, you know getting them you know tired out or bored or anything like that, um, and also because I do have uh, you know sort of real world responsibilities as far as my job and my commute. It doesn't leave me with a lot of time, and so actually sort of keeping the show short kind of helps me out as well. As then I have a little time to myself at the end of every week. The episodes, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to where you can find West's new show. And you can find it at, uh, it's on Tumblr at notationpodcast.tumblr.com. Um, but then the, uh, if you just want to subscribe to the Libsyn feed, uh, it's just musicalnotation.libsyn.com. Um, there's so many places if, you know, if you haven't listened to it before, if you want to jump in to start with, you know, you can go all the way back to the beginning and and follow along. But Really, like these episodes all stand alone as their own separate things. And, you know, just pick something that you enjoy hearing about and uh, jump right in. Yeah, I think so far the most popular episode has been the one on uh, Prince's Batman soundtrack. Oh, nice. Yeah. Did you you do that just after he passed away? Uh, It wasn't too long after that. No, Um, I I didn't really jump on it right away just out of out of respect. I, I don't really like to sort of you know, capitalize on, on things like that. I, I do think it's a little on the ghoulish side. Yeah. And I did happen to be doing, uh, because it was closer to the time of, uh, the Batman versus Superman movie. And so, you know, I did a separate episode on the Batman music and then, and another one on Superman music. And then I followed it up with, uh, with the Batman Prince, Prince's Batman soundtrack. Cause that's part of a sort of recurring feature on the show is that I have the, uh, the eighties soundtrack corner where I'll go and highlight a, a, a 
movie soundtrack from the 1980s and play some stuff from that because it's sort of a, a prime music period from my youth and I like to uh, inflict it on other people sometimes. So, and also I, you know, I haven't done an episode on uh, Purple Rain, but I guarantee you one is coming this year. Well, tonight uh, in our discussion of the film Eyes Without a Face, we have to touch on the film music there uh, done by Maurice Jarre, who, you know, as many will probably know him from, you know, films like Lawrence of Arabia or Dr. Zhivago or, you know, a number of other films, uh, some of which are in the Criterion Collection, some of which have are just notable track, you know, scores like, you know, the one from Ghost or the one from, the, you know, The Train or uh, so many others. Yeah, that's he's he is one of the uh, one of the, the film music titans, really. And um, yeah, that's in fact, that's another guy that I'll be devoting an entire episode to uh, at some point uh, next year. Just just on the scores that he did for uh, for David Lean epics. There's a whole whole fantastic pile of music there that's waiting to be uh, explored. So tonight, again, as we as I mentioned earlier, we're discussing the 1960 film from Georges Franju, uh, this, the film Le Yu Sans Visage, the Eyes Without a Face. Um, a film that which came out in March of 1960 in France, but then was later re-edited and dubbed in English uh, for a U.S. Uh, release in 1962 uh, under the title The Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus. The trailer, which you can see uh, on the Criterion uh, release of the film, they include both like the original trailers as well as the American trailer that came that was uh, when the film was released in the states. It was kind of paired with another ho- kind of horror movie, uh, The Manster, and you see the that trailer uh, on the release. So, West, I guess before we jump into discussing the film, like had you seen this before? Oh yes, yeah. Um, a friend of mine. Uh, at the time that the the Criterion DVD edition came out, he bought that, and uh, we all uh, we all took a look at it, and it was uh, it's fascinating. I I didn't find it, you know, super uh, uh, horrific or anything like that. I think really by today's standards, I think it's more just kind of creepy and unsettling. Um, but I know at the time it made quite a splash, and people were were kind of freaking out watching this movie in, back in 1960. Yeah, I mean the. the... So I guess spoilers ahead, obviously, for the film. I mean, if you haven't seen it yet, take some time. It's not very long. You know, it's about an hour and a half running time that you can spend watching it and then come back and listen to the episode. Um, the Blu-ray is beautiful and, uh, you know, definitely worth picking up uh, and owning in your collection. Yeah, spoilers. Uh, somebody has eyes. <laughs> and she doesn't have a face. We actually were planning on doing an episode on this film way back in 2012. Uh, there was a, a brief run when uh, I think James and I were doing an episode. We were we were doing some like you know Halloween type episodes, and you know we did an episode actually with you on RoboCop back in September of 2012. And then we were planning on doing uh, the movie Fiend Without a Face, and then Eyes Without a Face as kind of like a double feature. And then, for whatever reason, we never ended up recording an episode on Eyes Without a Face, and it kind of just got put on the back burner of like, well, we'll do this eventually, but, you know, it just didn't work out uh, at that time. And then, from there, that was kind of when the podcast started moving to a less frequent, you know, like, once or twice a month uh, release schedule. And so we, you know, this movie just kind of got kept getting pushed back, and then... 
you know, it's one that we like want, would want to save for Halloween time. And, uh, eventually in 2013, it got its Blu-ray release, which was very exciting. And now finally, three years later, we're, uh, actually sitting down, or at least I'm finally sitting down with you now here to talk about it. I'm lying down. <laughs> I guess for anyone, you know, if, I guess it's silly to talk about these movies as, as though anyone needs a, because you've, everyone who's listening to this has obviously uh, already watched it, but you know, I guess to recap the plot, the movie basically is just the story of a, an obsessive father who is trying to uh, make up for the damage inflicted on his daughter in a car crash by uh, kidnapping women and removing their face and trying to uh, successfully graft it to the daughter's face who has been, you know, horrifically disfigured uh, in the car crash. Yeah, and unfortunately, it's uh, predictably, because it is kind of a horror movie, it's it's not working out. <laughs> it's not working out. The very first uh, thing we see is the disposal of a body. Uh, one of the victims of the, the facial removal process uh, didn't, didn't survive and uh, is being dumped into the river uh, by... By the accomplice, a, a woman who is, uh, you know, she works with the with the father, with the with the doctor. It's a little un, it's unclear as to like what who she really is because later in the movie we learn that she it has also kind of been saved by the doctor. I mean, there's there's some hints as to like maybe who she might be, but it's never. I don't think it's explicit, explicitly said you know who she really is no yeah they definitely don't make it clear but it the one thing that is clear is that he has done some work on her and she is very grateful for it so she's basically going to help him do whatever needs to be done even if it means disposing of dead bodies so whatever he did for her she must be real happy with the results I mean, when there's that moment when she when she thanks him, or you know, she, when they have that moment together, and she t- says, you know, that I'm that I owe you, that I owe you this essentially, and that, um, you know, for a moment I thought like, is this the mother? And she's been, you know, she, she her face has been changed, uh, you know, to this new to this new woman's face. And that's maybe why the daughter doesn't recognize her anymore. I mean, that is not, that's kind of like a, a wild theory, but uh, it was just something that popped in my head, especially when the daughter ends up killing her and she has that look on her face. Like, I can't believe what you just did. You know, you stabbed me in the neck. And uh, I thought, oh, how, how sweet irony would that be if it was, if it was the mother that was being killed right then? Yeah. I don't, I don't think that's the case though. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, because again, the the whole thing about, with the story is that the doctor is trying to get uh, get a face to basically stay on his daughter, and it would be kind of weird if you know all this time there was a perfectly successful uh, uh, patient like standing in the movie the whole time, right? Well, it's just well, I'm having trouble with this one. I don't know what the deal is. It just it it would kind of it would kind of undermine everything all all the uh, the suspense that revolves around the doctor's efforts to to get the, this face to stay put on his daughter. Yeah, no, you're right. There's there's a whole moment at the in the beginning of the movie where he talks, where he's giving a little speech to an audience of uh, folks who are you know who are interested in the the medical field, and he talks about the idea of you know this being so hard because the body just rejects it. Um, and it has to, you know, you have to, sub, you know, you have to expose it to X-rays in order to kind of kill off uh, any of the, um, 
you know, the, the cells in the, in the blood that might uh, reject the, the new skin or the new, uh, the new flesh, I guess. And, uh, you know, inevitably like this is what kills, uh, you know, both the patient, but I guess both sides of the procedure. Yeah. I think this is just something that they said because it sounded good for the movie. Right. <laughs> Most of this stuff that's going on in the movie, I don't think is, uh, you know, literal medical techniques that, that are, uh, that people have been, been using uh, certainly not at that time. Definitely not. But you know, so the, the X, that's the thing when he's talking about, you know, x-rays doing this and that and the other, and oh, it's going to kill people and all that. It's like, well, I mean, you'd have to be bombarding somebody with a heck of a lot of x-rays to make that happen. Um, I don't, I don't know if there's any medical procedure where anything like that would be necessary. Even, even something like this, there, there are so many other variables that they could have talked about. I mean, in terms of like, you know, having the right blood type or, or mm-hmm. maybe some kind of issue of, of DNA or you know, anything like that. Cause there's, there's so many other things that I could think of that you would have to take into account if you were just basically lifting an entire face off of one human being and putting it onto another. I mean, it, it, I, I would have to think that there is something somewhat akin to like a, a kidney transplant or a liver transplant. You can't just slap anything in there. It's got to be a match for you. Otherwise, then, you know, you're, you're putting yourself up for a lot of trouble. It does make for a fun, you know, like it makes for a fun story, you know, that we're being told here in this. And um, later on, we see after the very explicit long uh, removal of a face, you know, on screen, uh, we get to see, you know, what we think is maybe a successful transplant of the face onto the daughter. Um, but then, you know, quickly we see it, you know, start to go south as, as the face starts to, you know, there's the, you know, the daughter's body is rejecting the, the transplant. Um, and like, like you alluded to earlier, there's that, that whole sequence where, uh, the face is removed very graphic you know especially for 1960 when uh you know not a lot you know there were obviously horror films but to have something like that just shown to you on the screen where so much of the movie is kind of in shadows or you know we don't see the daughter's face right away she's hiding it and um in the beginning of the movie a lot of what what is happening is like in shadows and it's uh, it's obscured but then finally when we get to the middle of the movie when one of the, you know, when they're performing this surgery, uh, you know, it's all right there in front of you. And um, he doesn't pull away or cut, you know, cut away to see any kind of reactions to the people doing it. It's just a him, you know, drawing the pencil around it and then cutting it, cutting off the face, putting on the little clamps to, to soak up the blood. And yeah, it's just a dry medical procedure. It is. Also, while Franju doesn't look away, he also doesn't dwell on it. Yeah, he doesn't turn it into a kind of a, a, a lurid thing. There's, and there's two things like that in the movie because yeah, there's the moment where you see the face getting lifted off the uh, the victim. There's really no other way to put it. And again, the the camera you know he shows you just enough so that you're absolutely sure this is what's happening. There's no turning back, and and then it goes away. But then also uh, earlier in the film, you do get to see the daughter without the mask. And again, the camera doesn't look away, but Franju doesn't linger on it so that, you know, mm-hmm. you, you know, you, you're stuck staring at this thing for interminable seconds of screen time ticking by just to, to give everybody the opportunity to like, you know, vomit into their popcorn bags and whatnot. Although I'm sure something like that was probably going on in 1960 anyway, because again, this is just, this is stuff that you weren't seeing back then. I mean, even in, in a movie like Psycho, 
from the same year. It was not the same year, 1960. Uh, there was some, there was some murdering going on in that movie, but you don't get to see anything like really super graphic in, in that movie. Did you watch the documentary that's included on the Criterion release, the blood of the beasts, the, the look at the, the abattoirs, the slaughterhouses in Paris? Yes, I did. Oh man. <laughs> so, so, uh, so if you haven't seen it, it's, you know, French, you made this documentary in 1949 and it starts out with, you know, like this, this look at Paris and he's like, you know, looking at some of the outside neighborhoods of Paris. And then we, we narrow in on a slaughterhouse where we see this horse being led into it. And he shows off some of the tools that the people use to, to, you know, to kill the animals. And then right there on the camera, you know, like on the screen, you see this horse being killed and bled out and, you know, taken apart, essentially like dissected. Um, and it is very graphic, much more graphic than anything you'll see in eyes without a face, uh, because it's really happening, you know, as far as, as far as the audience is concerned. Yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely not pretty. It is not for the faint of heart. Um, I didn't watch it this time, you know, in preparation for this episode, cause it's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, once is enough. It's not likely that you're, you're going to forget it. So, and yeah, it's the kind of thing that, uh, definitely if, 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 that same footage were inserted into a fiction film, everybody would be losing their minds. People would be up in arms about it. There would be all kinds of howling of protests. But because it's a documentary, you can pretty much get away with it because you're just saying, look, uh, this is this is what happens. This is how you know if this is how you get your your dog food or whatever it is that they're, or the glue, whatever it is they're doing with the with the horse, whatever you're going to do with it. This is just part of the uh, procedure. And, you know, this filmmaker thought that you might want to know. And actually, in, in a way, it sort of reminded me of, uh, of another work that is in the Criterion Collection, which is uh, a short film by, um, but it was, a, it was a short film called The Act of Seeing with One's Own Eyes. That's a brackage. There we go. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's, one of the, it's in the, uh, the, the brackage collection that you can get from Criterion. Um, and it's basically a short film that he made of uh, footage that consists entirely of footage of an actual human autopsy. Now, there again, if you took that same footage and you inserted it into a fiction film, uh, wow, people would be very upset. And that film would probably be banned in a lot of places in the United States. Uh, but in, in the case of the Brackage film, uh, you know, for, well, for starters, it, you know, he's not a mainstream artist, so most people haven't heard of it anyway. But, uh, you know, he's just looking at it in a detached clinical fashion. So there's not any, you know, you don't really have a complaint coming. If you know what what it's going to be, you can always just choose to look away. You know, another uh, criterion connection to the Blood of the Beasts short or, you know, documentary is that uh, Jean Painlevé, the, um, the the other French filmmaker, I think he wrote the the narration for the, the, the documentary itself. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I watched it last night, or at least I watched like the first couple minutes of it. Uh, Cause I, it's, you know, it is like you said, very hard to watch and it's not something that you really want to, you know, sit down with, uh, you know, with your family and say, all right, guys, let's watch this horse being killed and bled out. It does help kind of give a little bit of, or, you know, it makes the, the surgery moments in this movie, you know, you, you get to see a little bit more of what, what is going on in Frangie's head and what he's, what he's interested in showing us and, you know, where he's coming from you know, as a filmmaker. Yeah. And it also sort of explains why he sort he takes this sort of detached kind of clinical look 
You know, it's it's very dispassionate. Camera is focusing on when it, the, the, when the shot of uh, of his daughter without the mask, uh, the shot of the the face being removed from the victim. You know, he, he's not. He's just showing it to you. You know, he 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 knows that the imagery is powerful enough that he doesn't need to to comment on it. It doesn't need to be accompanied with you know with uh, you know shrieks of music or anything like that. You'll you'll be doing the shrieking. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny to hear, you know, that um, I think th- this is mentioned in a few places, but the the, the producer came to Franju and said something to the effect of like, we, you know, I want you to make this, make a horror movie, a French horror movie, but there can't be too much blood, you know, to uh, avoid, you know, the the censors. Uh, we can't torture any animals so that we, we can release it in the UK because the UK has very strict animal uh, rules about what can be shown in a movie regarding animal, you know, cruelty. And uh, there can't be any mad scientists because we don't want to offend the Germans. So that way we can have the German, you know, audiences uh, enjoy this movie. And then as everyone points out that this movie is essentially about a mad scientist who tortures animals and there is definitely uh, moments of blood in it. And not only that, but why do they give a rat's ass about uh, pissing off the Germans? Yeah. Oh, I know. Uh, I think it's mostly just a matter of like, you know, getting this movie into the market for, you know, in places like that. I guess, but still, geez, I mean, you know, you can let some markets go people. (laughs) Um, the mad scientist is played by uh, Pierre Brasseur, Dr. Genessier. Uh, I don't know if Genessier is like an actual family name, but I couldn't help but think of it as like looking somewhat like Genesis, uh, just in the way. And I don't know if that's like a, you know, a pun or, you know, like a uh, something that he came up with or was even in the, the book that this is based on. But uh, I thought that was an interesting little, you know, bit of trivia. Yeah, I don't know if it's in the book either, but uh, it it could very well be. But whoever came up with it, I'm sure that that was probably what they had in mind. Yeah. The book, I don't know. I, I tried looking around last night to see if the book had ever been translated into English or brought over to America, and it didn't seem like it. I saw some reviews pointing, you know, or kind of looking for it as well and not coming up with any. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know if it's, if it's ever even been released here in the States, but I know the... Um, the the film was was adapted and written by the the pair uh, Pierre Boileau and Thomas Narsajak, who are interviewed briefly in the the release, and they're also you know known for working on things like Diabolique and um, one of what I think that one of the Hitchcock movies also Vertigo is oh, Vertigo <laughs> yeah based on a novel that they wrote. So they didn't have any direct involvement in the making of Vertigo, but they wrote the novel that it's based on. And that, that interview is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty short. It's like six or seven minutes long. And it's just them talking about, you know, what, what types of crime, you know, stories they, they enjoy and what, uh, you know, what their working relationship is like. And, um, you know, it's a nice little bit. doesn't really give you a whole lot of information about this movie in particular, but, um, you know, it's, it's something. Yeah. It's also kind of fascinating though, to, to learn about their working methods, because mm-hmm. I always figure that, you know, when a couple of writers are, are collaborating, they're in the same room with each other and they're, they're batting ideas back and forth. And, you know, maybe they're taking turns at the typewriter or whatever, but nope, 
No, according to them, it's like one of them comes up with the, the plot structure and, and characters and so forth. And then the other one just sits down and writes it out. And, and then they'll sort of take turns going back and forth and you know, rewriting uh, each other's work. I thought that was that was really kind of weird. But I mean, it, it's because um, so I'll think of like songwriting uh, collaborations like Lennon and McCartney. They'll you know sit down with a couple of acoustic guitars and facing each other and they'll they'll hammer out a, a masterpiece but then on the other hand you know you have other songwriting teams like um uh oh let's see a uh, different in tilbrook actually is a really good example of what i'm thinking about the, the guys from uh, squeeze chris different and glenn tilbrook i don't know if you're familiar with squeeze um but they're a uk band have been around since uh late 70s early 80s and yeah what'll happen is uh uh chris different will write the lyrics and then he'll hand them over to glenn tilbrook and he'll set them to music that's how it works. There's a total division of labor. Uh, and, and I didn't think you could write a novel with that kind of division of labor, but I guess you can. One of the the ongoing you know pieces of this movie is the, the, the mask. And I just wanted to talk, like touch briefly on the use of the mask in the story, um, just because it's so effective and, uh, you know, would later go on to, I think, um, would later go on to affect, you know, or influence movies like Halloween uh, is one of the the noted, uh, you know, in influencers on, on that movie. Not just a movie like Halloween, though, but even, a movie, you know, the, the Friday the 13th movie. The whole idea of somebody's face being covered. I mean, you know, like in a circus, you know, you have clowns, they have the clown makeup and stuff, but that's fine because they're in the circus. It's when you get these creepy clown people who are walking around in the streets, you go, what the hell is this over here? We, we got to run for our lives. It's, it's the incongruity of the setting. When you have somebody wearing a mask, you know, if you know it at a masked ball or something like that, I know those kind of the things are kind of unusual, but when it happens, you know, if you, you go to one of those things and you see everybody is wearing a mask over their face, you think, well, that's what we all came here for. But then when you see just, you know, this young girl just walking around in her house or out in the yard and she's wearing a mask, that's automatically weird and unsettling. It's just, it's, it's, that's the thing that, that always uh, works in a, in a horror movie is just anytime somebody has their face covered in a, in, in some place that we consider sort of normal space where normally, normally people would not be wearing masks for any reason. That's always like the big danger warning sign. So, uh, yeah, definitely Halloween is part of that tradition, but yeah, I would also say that, you know, the Friday, the 13th movies could be part of that uh, as well, because you got somebody wearing a mask, it's, you know, it's not a, a well-defined type mask, like uh, like Mike, Michael Myers's mask, but still, it is a mask nonetheless. Again, you see a guy with a with a big old uh, hockey mask uh, in a in a hockey rink. You don't think twice about it because that's where it belongs. But you see a guy out on the street with one, and it's like warning, Will Robinson. You get the hell out of there. And there were obviously uses of masks before this movie. You know, you could even just look at something like Phantom of the Opera. Uh, I mean, he's he's hiding a disfigured face in that as well. Um, but this one is interesting just because it's like the, the, the use of the, of the mask is like, because we don't see her face too much, except for that one, you know, moment when she, when she goes up to the girl who's laying down and you see, you know, kind of through her like bleary vision, you get to see what, what her face looks like underneath. The mask is kind of molded in a way to, you know, mimic uh, a girl's face. And so it's pleasant to look at. And her eyes, you know, don't appear to be disfigured in any way. So it, it, it's, it, you're, 
you know, she's she's made out to be something like a monster in a way, you know, because of the mask. But it's also it's not scary, but it's, you know, it, like you said, it's, it's unsettling in a different way, but not, you know, horrifying to look at. Yeah, it's not out and out terrifying, but it's just the 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 cumulative effect of this girl walking through this entire movie almost all the time with a mask on her face is just it's just really weird and you it it sort of sets you on edge because again it's not something that you normally see you know with the young girls walking around in a house and then later at the end of the movie the when when everything goes to hell and uh the the dogs are released and the, the the girl gets away the last of the victims gets away and uh the dogs go attack the professor he gets his own little facial uh deformation there as he's as he's chewed on by them yeah that's no fun but then so what do you think happens to the girl because basically you know she's pretty much you know vanquished her captors so to speak and she has liberated the uh, other potential victim and herself she's liberated herself and away she goes. She just saunters off into the woods. What happens after that, do you think? Yeah, I mean, does she go to visit her her fiancé that, that, you know, that thinks that she's dead? Um, or, you know, and she's been calling him throughout the, the movie and he kind of suspects that maybe she's alive or that something is going on. Um, I mean, I, I really love that they ended on such a, you know, an ambiguous ending. Like, you know, she, she is, she's liberated herself. She's killed her father, killed the other woman, uh, let all the, the animals free that she's, you know, spent time with, uh, you know, who is, she's been, you know, uh, locked up as a prisoner, essentially like these animals have. Um, and now, you know, what what would you do i mean it's kind of like you know the end of frankenstein where the frankenstein monster is able to escape and um you know where do you go or how do you live and how do you live with yourself knowing you know what you've kind of been not directly responsible for but maybe indirectly responsible for you know the deaths of all these girls who you know and does she feel any remorse for like for what her father did uh to kind of you know for her essentially yeah, I don't know if it, it's a if I don't know if it's a question of remorse. Um but I mean I think she definitely feels like she's sort of settled to score by uh releasing the hounds on him. You know, she could have just said, "Well, I'm leaving." But nope, nope. She she had to make sure that he got his comeuppance. So cuz you know, uh yes, definitely some some young women have uh, you know, have suffered at at the hands of the doctor. But definitely, you know, she has suffered as well. So, and at least, you know, I mean, that's small, small comfort, but at least all those other girls, I mean, they, they at least died, you know, for her, you know, th- she just keeps on suffering. It just well, it doesn't, I, I mean, it's weird because like she doesn't seem like she's protesting much against what the father is doing. Like, it seems like she knows what's happening and she's gone through the, the, this experience of getting new faces and she must understand, you know, what's, what the cost is of that. Uh, but she doesn't seem to be, you know, fighting in any meaningful way up until the very end. Yeah. It, I don't even know if it, you could chalk it up to like, sedatives or something like that maybe the, the doctor and and louise's assistant has got her like doped up or something mm-hmm. yeah i mean it seemed like that would be a an effective way of, of of taking care of that but they don't show that in the movie 
Yeah, it's that's uh, it's it's a question to be explored because definitely the doctor is his motivation is not a hundred percent noble and above board either because there's definitely sort of a uh, an unpleasant degree of sort of control attempting to control the life of his daughter by you know, all this stuff that he's working on because really I, I I there's I think he's motivated more out of uh, out of guilt and out of ego than he is out of love for his own daughter. I don't know. I, 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 I feel like there is, there is more, uh, a, a guilt and, you know, love and remorse for what hit, hit like his responsibility in the car accident that caused this, even though, you know, the daughter says, I think that, you know, that he, he was, he was very controlling of the situation in, in the car and which led to the accident. Um, but like, yeah, I guess we I guess we don't really see him him in that like you don't see him um you know talking to anyone about like how bad he feels about what he did to to her and like why he's doing this. Um you just but you do we do see him, you know, giving that speech at the beginning and so we know that he is like you said concerned about his ego to some extent because he's working on on, on this procedure and trying to perfect it and, you know, actually, well, not, maybe not perfect it, but just get it to work. And this could kill two birds with one stone and that like it would, you know, propel his, his status and his, you know, make him a known figure in the, in the, the scientific community while also, you know, cure, uh, helping cure the, this problem that he created. Yeah. I, 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 but I think, see, like you said, he, you know, he was sort of, trying to control things when he was behind the wheel and caused the accident. And here he's basically, he's still, still a control freak trying to, uh, to, to get this thing. I think it's, he's trying to, to succeed more for himself than for, than for his own daughter. It feels like that to me uh, more often than not. I don't, I don't feel very much love for coming from him. If anything, I feel more affection coming from Louise to the daughter than, than from, from the father. Yeah, maybe that's what I was getting at with the like the the mother angle. I think, or well, that's where I was thinking. You know, like she does she does feel like, and maybe it's just because we see her more frequently. I mean, we see her. I guess she probably has the most lines, maybe in the movie or one. You know, between her and the and the professor or the doctor, that you know she she has many lines in luring the girls out to the house. Um, and we see her, you know, on the screen at the beginning, she's the first face that we see. So we definitely connect more with her, I think, throughout the movie. And, and her death almost feels more tragic at the end, even though, you know, we've seen her disposing of bodies and, you know, playing a hand in, in killing these girls. But like when she is stabbed by uh, the daughter, it just feels, I don't know, if, I feel more sad for her than maybe the professor when, when he dies. Yeah, it is kind of sad because the thing is, is that... Um, yeah, Louise is definitely involved in in some bad things, but the thing is, is that she's doing it. You can tell she's doing it because she's a believer. As is, as she she mentions to the doctor that he helped her with uh, with whatever happened to her face, and so that's why clearly Louise is is thinking that you know if if the doctor could could save my face, then obviously it's only a matter of time before he'll be able to do the same thing for his daughter. So that's that's why she just you know unquestioningly does whatever is asked of her because she figures that there's no way it's not going to work. The doctor worked for her. The woman uh, who plays Louise, Alita Valley was in 
notably things like the third man i mean she's the 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 main actress in that and then she's also been in senso and suspiria and, and you know many other films um and she has an amazing name for anyone who hasn't looked her up before i mean her name is you know her stage name her actress name is alita valley but uh, her real name is the Baroness Alida Maria Laura Altenberger von Markenstein Frauenberg. What a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, um, let's shorten that to Valley. No problem. That works much better for all of us. That, yeah, that'd take up a lot of screen real estate if uh, she just had her full name up there every time she was she was on in a movie. Uh, I, I think that the other actors would probably complain about that. It's taking up too much screen. But she's yeah, she's she's great in pretty much everything I've ever seen her in. The the opening sequence too, uh, you know, we mentioned uh Maurice Charre did the music for it. Like that that theme that he sets the mu- the the movie with, you know, with the, when we're watching the car, uh it's such a great kind of eerie piece of music that that starts things off with. Um as we you know it's it's also interesting how he kind of shoots that opening sequence where he's you know, we see the car and then we go in for the close up of the, uh, of her looking in the like looking in the rearview mirror, and then it, we slowly learn more about what's going on within this little moment. You know, we see the the body in the back. We don't know what's going on with that. Um, you know, whether they're alive or dead, we don't know yet. But um, he he shoots that sequence uh, really well, and then you know the music on top of that makes things even better. Yeah, the the music is particularly good because it's not like an overt horror film score you know, he doesn't go for like you know big kind of shocking moments or anything like that i mean there are big shocking moments in the movie but uh i think that the filmmakers and the composer are smart enough to know that you don't need to you know put too fine a point on it and also there's i mean there's a whole love theme that uh you know plays in the film that is you know i i get well that i mean i don't know if they call it a, a love theme i think it, they refer to it as a romantic theme but I mean, you can listen to it on on YouTube, and it's uh, and it, and it is it is very lovely, and it's sort of atypical as far as uh, as a horror movie goes. But well, I mean, at least as far as like sort of what we think of as a sort of standard horror movie music of the time, I think that actually uh, that they had this sort of nice sort of you know lovely sort of lilting theme music in this film. I think it kind of could, it paved the way to other music that you could find in in future horror movies like think about the uh, the theme from rosemary's baby which i mean it's it's definitely a little sort of more haunting and serious but it's also very sort of lilting and and it's, it's it has a very lovely quality on it and then uh think about another decade or so down the line when you have uh, jerry goldsmith's uh, main the carol ann's theme from poltergeist remember that one i mean there's there's not even a hint of horror in carol ann's theme it's just like it's just like a child's lullaby and and it it makes the film seem spookier because you know it's a horror movie and yet you have this really sweet music going on and it it it, it kind of puts you on edge a little bit absolutely and this is like you know this is his second movie Jarius. he you know he worked with uh franju in another movie the year before this but then you know he did this score for eyes without a face but then it would be a couple years later that he did lawrence of arabia and then, you know, from there, that just pretty much catapulted him into a completely different uh, strata as far as film composers go. That that just put him right there in the front ranks. You know, he won uh, the first of uh, a couple of Academy Awards for that one. And then, of course, you know, he came back for Lean uh, about three years later, did Dr. Zhivago, uh, got another one. And 
if anything, I think probably Lara's theme from Dr. Zhivago may be even more recognized than the theme from Lawrence of Arabia. It was just really, because, you know, you could, because it's like a, a nice little waltz. You could play it at weddings. Uh, can't really do that with Lawrence of Arabia. Well, I mean, you could, but I don't think anybody would appreciate it. And yeah, then, and he also did a couple of uh, scores for John Frankenheimer around that same time. You mentioned The Train in 1964, which is a really good one. Uh, and then a couple of years later, he did the score for Grand Prix. Uh, his, you know, Frankenheimer's epic car racing movie from 66. So, and yeah, and then of course you also mentioned uh, Ghost, which was, uh, that's, that's one that I think probably more, more uh, modern audience members would remember. Although even with that, they probably remember uh, Unchained Melody more than, than the music that, that Jarre did. Although I think if you, if, if I just played you the music from the sequence with the penny, uh, everybody would just lose it and start crying. Everybody would just have that sense memory of it and, and they would just totally lose it. Cause yeah, that's, it, you know, he, he really, he really made uh, a, a sort of a mysterious melodramatic moment. And he, he took it and, and he just kind of blew it up into something really grand uh, with, with that scene. If you go back and, and watch it, it's it, the music really just cranks it up a notch. I mean, it's, it's a fine scene without it, but with it, it's it. That, that's what really sells it. There's a, I was looking around last night on YouTube, just listening to some of his music. And there's a, there's some YouTube channel that does, I'll have to find the link and put it in the show notes for it. But there's basically an interview with him talking about getting the job for Lawrence of Arabia and how the producer who like the American, one of the American producers wanted to have like three different composers to to do the film like a russian composer and someone else and then uh and then jare and then um then those other guys like one of them couldn't get out of russia in order to come score the movie and then another one wanted much more time than they could give him and so it really like it all just kind of landed on him and he's there like you know like rubbing his hands together like oh i got it now he really is one of the uh one of the greats Although, you know, uh, even he can suffer setbacks because uh, he is among the, uh, the, the handful of notable composers who has uh, had his music rejected for a film. Uh, this was one from the early 90s. Yeah, it was the early 90s. It was a Curtis, uh, film directed by the late, great uh, Curtis Hansen called The River Wild. Have you ever seen that one? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Jerry Goldsmith ended up uh, coming in for that. Yeah. He, they, 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 you know, Maurice Jarre did, he did a score and then they didn't like it. So they said, eh, no, this has got to go. And then they brought in Jerry Goldsmith and I guess he, he gave them what they, what they wanted. And that's, uh, that's like the first time in, in that decade that I can think of that Goldsmith came in at the last minute because he did the same thing again with Air Force One in 1997. And that was, you know, who wrote the score for that one originally? You'll never guess it in a million years because you'll, I'll say it and you'll go, what the hell? It was Randy Newman, the last guy in the world you'd think is going to do an action movie like that. And obviously there's a reason why, because his score didn't, wasn't up to scratch for as far as the, the producers were concerned. So they, they, they got rid of that. I, that's something I'm, I'm probably going to do on my show at some point in the future. I'll just do a whole episode on rejected scores because I mean, they, they are available. From, and there's plenty of composers. I mean, you know, Goldsmith had his score rejected, you know, in, in, at one time or another. Uh, Ennio Morricone has had a score rejected. Hard to believe, but it's happened. Are, and have you have you come across ones where you prefer the rejected score to the to the one that was used? No, 
but only because um only because I'm so used to the music that is in the movie mm-hmm. that I I couldn't imagine it like like for for instance like the biggest example would be Alex North who wrote a score for 2001 okay Stanley and then and then Kubrick wanted to use the the classical music that they had used for like the temp tracks yeah and so yeah Alex North was given the go by um, but I've I have heard the score and uh, it's it, it's really nice but. Um, how how can you compete? How can you compete with Richard Strauss? How can you compete with the, the, the with the Blue Danube? I mean, it's just uh, how can you compete with Kachaturian? You can't. Uh, so uh, th- there's no way I'm going to say that 2001 would be better with Alex North's music. I just don't buy it. Um, okay, the, the the only instance I can think of is Torn Curtain. Because, I mean, if you've ever seen Alfred Hitchcock's Torn Curtain, the whole thing was that, you know, uh, of course, Bernard Herrmann had been hired to do the score and Hitchcock didn't like it. Although I, I think it's not so much that he didn't like it is that the studio really wanted something more pop, which, as I'm sure you're aware, Bernard Herrmann doesn't do. And so and, and so Hitchcock was really just more reacting to the fact that Bernard Herrmann wasn't giving him what the studio wanted. If it wasn't the studio on his back, I'm sure Hitchcock would have been fine with whatever Herrmann gave him because he certainly had no complaints in the past. I mean, in the past, Herrmann even gave him stuff that he didn't want. And he said, this is good because, you know, the whole, remember the whole thing about the scene from Psycho with the shower. He's, you know, Hitchcock said no music. And Herrmann said, nope, I'm doing it anyway. And he played it for Hitchcock. And he said, oh yeah, you're right. Okay. Music. So, this time it, with Torn Curtain, it was more just the, the pressure that the studio was putting on him. That uh, I'm I'm certain of that. And so, the what music is Herman hadn't even finished composing all of the music. There's about forty minutes, and it was rejected, and it was replaced with a score by John Addison, which is terrible. Torn Curtain as a movie in general is not that great, but the music in particular is just uh, it's just heinous. I can't take it. And the music that we have of Bernard Herrmann's score, because uh, somebody did eventually record it. Uh, I believe it was conducted by Joel McNeely. It was part of the Varese Saraband series of, uh, of releases of Bernard Herrmann's scores. And what you have of it, it's, it's actually really good. And in fact, um, when Martin Scorsese remade Cape Fear in 1991, you know, he, he insisted on retaining Bernard Herrmann's original music, but there, was, there wasn't enough of it. Because you know, because uh, you know, Scorsese's film is longer than the original film, and there were some instances where he felt that they needed more music. And Elmer Bernstein, who had uh, done the the rearranging and the recording of uh, Herman's uh, repurposed score for Cape Fear, he took some of the score, the unused score for Torn Curtain, and it's in the remake of Cape Fear now. So, so that's a place that you can hear it. But again, uh, also on Varese Saraband, like I said, they released, you know, they, they released uh, a recording of the whole 40 minutes that is available that Herman wrote uh, of the score for Torn Curtain. And yeah, the, the movie would have been much better with his music. So that's, that's one that I can, I can say for sure. The one that Ennio Morricone, because the Ennio Morricone wrote the score for um, What Dreams May Come. The, the Robin Williams movie, mm-hmm. which, and uh, I only ever saw that movie once and I remember liking it, but not being super crazy about it. So I don't really remember uh, what the music was like in that film. So I mean, if I go back and, and watch it now, knowing what I know, uh, maybe I could say that that one was, uh, would be, would be better 
with Ennio Morricone's music. I can't imagine too many movies that wouldn't be better with Ennio Morricone's music. So that's, that, yeah, that's kind of a, a weird thing. But we're talking about this movie. Cranju liked the music that Maurice Jarre gave him. So, and I like it too. It, it is available on a soundtrack somewhere, but I just, I don't have it. I think it was only released in France. Yeah, I was looking around and I, I saw that too. Um, but I think you can you can buy it digitally here in the States, perhaps on Amazon, and you can find it streaming on various music services. Yeah, unfortunately, this you know some things that just aren't available. Like I mean, like the score for the train, I have I I have it on vinyl, so but it's not available on CD. But you can get it digitally on Amazon. I've seen it there. And the train was released by Twilight Time, and so that's one of the releases where you can listen to the isolated score. Uh, of that movie um you know on the on the blu-ray from twilight time yeah and they've just re-released it which is kind of cool because I, that's it's such a great movie uh john frankenheimer is a on some today unfortunately he's kind of overlooked as a filmmaker and this was one of his very best films and um and i i bought the original twilight time uh blu-ray for the train i don't think i need to buy the new one i don't think there's anything new on there is there I don't think there is. I think it's all just the same yeah. supplements from the last I'm just one. glad that the people who might not have, you know, might have missed out on it the first time around, they'll get the chance to see it again. Because if you, if, you, if you have, you know, 30 bucks to plunk on it, it is well worth it. It's a fantastic adventure movie. Yeah, that one's one where I remember when the Twilight Time release came out, it, you know, it was, I, I hadn't seen it before. And I was reading all these great reviews of the the Blu-ray release, people saying, you know, this is one of Frankenheimer's best movies. This is just such a great, fun action movie or, you know, adventure movie. And um, and then I think it, it was right around then that it started to sell out uh, or at least, you know, Twilight Time was giving off those low quantity warnings where they're saying, you know, you better get it soon if you want to get it because it's going to sell out. And sure enough, it did. Yeah. So I'm I'm glad they brought it back. Yeah, for the people who don't know, uh, if you don't know about Twilight Time, yeah, they they license movies from from a couple of studios, and but they only license them for strictly limited edition Blu-rays. They they put out three thousand copies, and when they're gone, they're gone. Uh, yeah. Obviously, except for uh, the train. But I think there's another one that they re-released recently. They have done really re-releases for a number of movies that they have sold out. I mean, they keep threatening to stop doing this, but it seems like they keep managing to 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 do new reissues uh if they can sell them then i don't see any reason to stop because that's and that's the whole thing is that they're trying to you know they're sort of keeping uh keeping home video presentation alive as the as does the criterion collection and i really like that the the fact that they do the the isolated score versions of all the all of their blu-ray releases i mean this is something that kind of goes back to their like founding philosophy is that you know they're, they're coming from a a area of loving film soundtracks and so that's why all of the blu-rays that they do have isolated score versions of it one of the supervisors uh, for, for their titles is nick redman he's very big in in the field of uh, film soundtracks and uh you know releasing uh, film scores I mean, he was one of the producers on the um the star wars anthology uh cd box set that came out in the late 90s which was like that was, at that time, it was 1997, it came out. It was a four-CD box set, and that was, for a while, the definitive uh, edition of the, the the Star Wars trilogy soundtracks on compact disc. And it's got, uh, fan, he did fa- pages and pages of fantastic liner notes uh, for the box set, and it's, it's, it's I, I still think it's, it's great. I mean, they've, obviously, they've released more complete editions of those soundtracks since then, in the wake of the special editions of the movies, but... Um, 
still that yeah that one, I still have that that anthology box set. I think it, I still think it's uh, fantastic. I had mentioned earlier that this movie uh, Eyes Without a Face had been recut and and released in the states. I think I think what I was reading was that the one moment that had been that was one of the things that had been edited out for the U.S. release was there's a moment when the professor when the doctor kind of cares for a young child at the hospital that he's working at. And apparently that was cut out for the U.S. release in order to make him seem more evil. What is this with doctors caring about children? We can't have that. This is America, damn it. The, uh, that U.S. release, the English dub, um, I don't think that has had any kind of DVD release. There is a, there, I think there was a VHS release of it. And if you go to, the only place I've been able to find it is someone uploaded it to this that website daily motion and so there's a there's the entire movie in english in a very bad transfer uh, up on there if you're at all curious to just hear what the movie sounded like when it came to the states uh you know obviously don't don't watch the whole thing because it's just you know it's it's very poor and uh did they change the music as well make it more like a american horror movie type music um, I didn't notice. I mean, I only watched a few minutes of it just to hear what the dialogue sounded like in English uh, and, and to see kind of how the transfer sounded, but or, you know, how it looked. Um, but I didn't I, I didn't pay too much attention to the music. So I can easily imagine them stripping away Maurice Jarre's score and replacing yeah. it with something that's sort of more typically bombastic horror movie type music. I, I can I, I I'm going to have to check that out and verify it, but I, I'm willing to bet that that's what they did. They didn't. I would be. I'd be pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I mean, that's all I, I can go back in time and fix anything. But it would be just interesting to to see. I, I I'm always kind of interested in sort of when when people do weird butchering alternate cuts of stuff, and that's you know that was one of the the fun things about uh, the the Love Conquers All version of Brazil, which I mean you, you don't watch it too often, but you should at least see it. Yeah, I mean that I, I kind of you know when I learned about the U.S version of this movie i was like well i, I kind of wish criterion had maybe put that on as a supplement just to see or maybe even just given us some kind of like you know brief overview of like here's here's what that u.s version looks like or here's what it sounds like um but you know it's 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 notably absent from the release yeah maybe they just figured it wasn't worth it or yeah yeah or getting maybe getting the rights to it yeah because somebody else might own that and it would have been too costly or something but you know whenever whenever they can put in one of the things I like is when like they'll put in like an a, a remade version or an earlier version of a film because like the uh, like with Magnificent Obsession, which they did uh, with the the upcoming release of uh, His Girl Friday, they're going to do that. They're going to they were going to include the the front page. Um, it would be it'd be even cooler if they could throw in the the later remake of the front page that Billy Wilder did with mm. Lemon and Walter Matthau, but I mean, that one wasn't as good. I, the, the original version of the front page with Adolf Manju and somebody else whose name I'm forgetting um, is actually really good. I mean, it's, it's definitely, it pales in comparison to His Girl Friday, but also Billy Wilder's remake of the front page pales in comparison to the 1931 version. So it's, you know, I, I can understand why they wouldn't include it, but it would just be kind of interesting to do just to, to see that comparison. And, um, John Stahl's original version of Magnificent Obsession, you know, which uh, of course uh, Douglas Sirk remade. It's 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 interesting to look at, just because obviously they're, they're coming from two different decades and also two very different uh, directorial styles and points of view. Um, it's kind of weird that 
John Stahl made two movies in the 1930s that were both remade in the 50s by Douglas Sirk, because the other one was uh, Imitation of Life. And both of those are also available on the Imitation of Life Blu-ray. If you get that, you can see the, uh, the 1930s version with Claudette Colbert and, of course, the 1959 remake with Lana Turner. There is a competing release for Eyes Without a Face. There's a, a The BFI released it back in uh, last year, in August of 2015. Um, this one was actually kind of announced and then delayed a number of times. I remember following the news of it. Uh, I think people were talking about this on the Criterion Forum for a long time and you know, curious to see what the BFI had announced that they said, we're going to do this on Blu-ray. And then it took them maybe like a year or more to get the, the, the release actually out. Um, but it does feature a few different supplements than what comes with the Criterion one, including a commentary track from Tim Lucas and uh, a couple of short films from Franju that aren't on the Criterion one, and then a documentary about Franju and uh, a few other um, interviews and, and supplements. So um, apparently the, the transfer from what I've seen looks very comparable to what uh, we got from Criterion, but if you you know want more context or information and you have a region-free player, then you know it's probably worth importing this one. Why do you suppose that one was delayed so long? Um, it might just have been that the the supplements that they were putting on there, or you know, um, I mean, it, it seemed like they used the same restoration or the same uh, source material, so it probably wasn't a matter of them you know waiting on that. Um, but maybe it's just the production issues with, um, you know, doing the interviews or doing, you know, like getting it put together. Um, but I don't think they ever came out and said what the reason was that it was delayed. The cover art uh, that Criterion used for it is, uh, I think it's great. It's done by that company, uh, Aesthetic Apparatus. And they've done a number of Criterion uh, covers and, and pieces of artwork, including things like Island of Lost Souls and um, the Honeymoon Killers and Sword of Doom and um, things like La Strada. So uh, they have their, you know, their their fingerprints over a number of different releases from Criterion. Uh, I mean, this was what they used for the DVD uh, for Eyes Without a Face was the, you know, they used the same DVD uh, artwork. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. I, I didn't know they also did uh, the, uh, the Charles Lawton movie. That that's a really good cover. I like that one a lot. But this one's good too. I I I, I don't know why, but I, I just I really like the pink of it. Yeah, it stands out. I mean, because it's like a black and white movie. Yeah, there's no color. You know, but you know, there. But it's also it just seems like such an unexpectedly sort of feminine, girly color uh-huh. for a movie about a girl who's got her face ripped off in an accident. <laughs> no, yeah, it's a great it's a great little twist on it. Yeah, I like that one a lot. Well, West, were there any other, you know, topics or things or themes that you wanted to touch on in, in discussing this movie? Well, let's see. Well, let's see. I, I did jokingly mention Face Off, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess there 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 is kind of like, you know. I don't get the feeling that Face Off was in any way uh, uh, influenced by Eyes Without a Face. On the other hand, I can't help but wonder if uh, Darkman was influenced by this movie in any way. Oh, absolutely. It has to have been, I would imagine. Yeah, because there's, there's a whole thing going on there. With I mean, you know, when just looking at sort of the, the montage of photographs of uh, of Christiane, 
uh, as the her, you know the the her face is deteriorating and and the doctor is you know basically explaining everything that that's happening and how bad it's getting, it just reminded me of the whole ninety nine minutes thing of that uh, of the the artificial face that uh, that uh, the doctor comes up with in in Dark Man. Yeah, I I, to- I hadn't even thought of that, but you're so right. Like that is definitely there's there has to be a direct connection there. Yeah, because you know Doctor Payton. You know, <laughs> He, uh, you know, he's, it's, that's the whole thing is he's trying to come up with this artificial flesh. And, and again, just like, just like, uh, this doctor in, in this movie, you know, he's, he's on the verge, but he just, he just can't get it right after a certain amount of time. It just goes kablooey on him. But, you know, at least in, in dark man, it, it lasts long enough for him to go out and, and, and clean up the forces of evil, which, you know, the, the, the only difference, you know, in eyes without a face, you know, Christiane doesn't doesn't need to get her face back in order to clean up the forces of evil. She just takes care of it on her own. But yeah, I yeah, that, it was just that that montage of her face, you know, deteriorating. That I, it immediately reminded me of Darkman, which I mean, I, I had just watched again like a couple of months ago because I got the uh, the Shout Factory Blu-ray, which is uh, fantastic. I mean, it's such a great movie. I, I love Darkman. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't know why it's like, I'd seen both movies, you know, a couple of times over the course of my life. And it wasn't until this one time I was just watching it uh, just last week, eyes without a face. And I suddenly made that connection with, uh, with dark man. And I never heard Sam Raimi mention it, but gosh, I mean, there's, there's gotta be an influence there, you know? Yeah. Uh, there's also, you know, the Almodovar film, the skin, I li- or the skin I live in. Yeah. That's that's uh, a really good one. and but that one he I mean I he acknowledged the 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 uh, the debt to the Franju movie he, so so we you know we know that 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 one that one we got covered and that's a really good movie have you seen it yeah it's great yeah I I love that one I haven't seen too many Almodovar films but I have seen that one and it's uh, it's fantastic and then I I was looking around at other movies that sim- featured similar like storylines and there's this Jess Franco one that uh, the awful Doctor Orloff. Uh, which also features a doctor, you know, performing facial removal on on women. I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, there's there is a. I'm sure there's a whole horror. I've never dwelt uh, dwelled too deeply in in uh, the horror genre. It's really just it's not my favorite. I don't. There are some horror movies that I I love but it's not my favorite genre. So, but I am sure that there's probably a whole subgenre within horror of you know movies with scientists doing uh, awful things to, to people in, in the name of some kind of scientific breakthrough. I mean, the, like I, I guess the, the human centipede movies would probably be maybe a sort of a, a more far fetched connection, <laughs> yeah. but in terms of, uh, you know, just a, a wacky scientist doing something that maybe he shouldn't have had in uh, in, in the name of, you know, his own, uh, scientific process or, or his own ego or something like that. I mean, they're, you could draw a slight parallel there, but yeah, that's, I haven't seen any of those movies and I have no intention of seeing them. And then there are obviously like, I mean, these movies, you know, there are, there's a whole new modern era of, of French horror movies with things like martyrs and frontiers and inside. But, um, I don't think those, those aren't, you know, connected thematically with what this movie is, but it have, you know, the, there is like a, a, an ongoing French horror you know, genre throughout the, throughout, over the years. And yeah, they're going far out in the last decade or so They're with, uh, with body horror in some of those movies, there's some wildly unpleasant stuff going on. It's kind of interesting in that I, I, and I think you can sort of draw a line from 
Eyes Without a Face to those movies because, uh, as I recall from what I was reading, that you know the the whole notion back then of uh, you know horror movies in France, they just thought, well, you know this this is not this is not French. This is not done. We we're 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 France. Where we do better things than 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 horror movies. They really looked down on them. And Franju, I guess he, he he took a lot of flack for making a horror movie because they felt that that it was you know some people felt that it was beneath him. Obviously, there's it seems like a lot of French film critics at the time, at least, and maybe even French movie goers as well, thought that that you know the horror genre was was just you know something that was uh, cheap and tawdry and best left to the Americans. I don't know, but. But I think that without a movie like this sort of opening up that genre in that country, you wouldn't have these uh, these wacky far out horror movies that the French are making today. Last thing I want to mention, though, is this also because you did touch on the, uh, the the cinematography, which is, of course, uh, uh, very good. And we should mention that that's uh, a German uh, cinematographer named uh, Eugene Schuftan, who invented a whole uh, special effects uh, process that was named after him. That uh, they used on uh, on Metropolis that uh, Fritz Lang directed in the twenties, and you know he yeah so he did movies in in Germany and in France and also America because uh, after this movie after I saw a face he came on over here and uh, got an Oscar for the Hustler how about that everybody <laughs> and then also oh you know what else he did uh, this is funny because just by a total coincidence this movie was just announced for the Criterion Collection this very day he did the cinematography just, yeah. for something wild. And not the Jonathan Demme something wild, but this other something wild that I was only vaguely familiar with. And I guess, uh, I guess the, the Criterion Collection is now going around collecting all the movies called Something Wild, and they're going to have them all <laughs> uh, under one uh, Criterion umbrella. Yeah, I cannot wait to see this new or this old older Something Wild. Uh, yeah, like you said, cinematography by him. Uh, Saul Bass did the credits for it. Uh, I can't wait to see this. Yeah, I mean, Carol Baker is in it, and mm-hmm. it's just, it, it's, it seems to have, like, a whole bunch of stuff that uh, I, I would love. Oh, and the music is by Aaron Copeland, mm-hmm. who's, you know, just one of the great American uh, composers. Not just film composer, but he is a, you know, a composer composer. You know, the, the Billy the Kid and all that stuff. Uh, fanfare for the Common Man. It's just some, some uh, iconic orchestral uh, pieces. So, yeah, I'm, I'm you know, this is turning into a discussion about uh, upcoming releases but I'm, I'm really i'm really looking forward to this one because i've never seen it before i've heard about it somewhat but uh yeah this is gonna be uh kind of kind of cool but yeah eugene shuften is just you know german cinematographer and uh was hopping around europe working on various things and found himself in france in 1960 and worked on this then came across the pond working with with paul newman and george c scott and piper laurie man the the the, and the that, that, the Hustler is another one of those movies that you wish was part of the Criterion Collection because it's such a great American film. We had mentioned uh, Diabolique and talking about the, the 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 pair of writers who you know who worked on the the script for this one, but I feel like Diabolique would make a nice double feature with with Eyes Without a Face, uh, just in like the, the 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 feeling of it. Yeah, the the suspense and the the definite feeling of of unease. Yeah. And the gradually mounting terror. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I think that would work really well as a double feature. I mean, you know, no, uh, no disrespect to uh, to Clouseau, but yeah, it's like I I would rather see a double feature of Diabolique and Eyes Without a Face than a double feature of Diabolique and The Wages of Fear. The Wages of Fear is one of those things that well, you you should just watch that and then take a bath. 
<laughs> don't even bother trying to watch anything after you've seen that movie because you're just going to be wrung out and there's nothing else for it. Just, you know, get a sandwich, you know, take a walk, whatever. It, and not only that, but it's also it's a two and a half hour movie. So it's, it's not like you're going to have a lot of room for, for a second, you know, for a double feature after that movie anyway. Well, West, thank you so much for joining me tonight to talk about this movie. Well, thank you for having me. This is awesome. Listeners, please go subscribe to West's show. Again, it's called Musical Notation. Uh, I'll have links in the show notes to where you can subscribe and follow uh, the show and him uh, on Twitter and Tumblr and all the other places. Uh, There's a nice little Facebook group uh, where you can go discuss uh, the episodes that he releases as well. Uh, Do you have anything else that you want to promote? Is there anything else you're working on these days besides the show? Or, you know... uh, you know, you can also read uh, West's reviews over at Battleship Pretension, uh, where he'll review home video releases uh, here and there. And, uh, you know, you join them uh, infrequently, but uh, somewhat regularly, I guess, uh, on their episodes uh, of the podcast. Yeah, I'm sure I'm, I know I'm going to have to be coming back there uh, at some point in the near future. Because we did over the course of this year so far, we've done two episodes on uh, John Williams. And because he's had such a, a lengthy career, we kind of split him up. So like about first 10, 15 years of his career uh, early this year. And then in the middle of summer, we did an episode of, uh, you know, where we covered like the middle 20 years. And uh, so at some point soon, soon-ish, I mean, maybe by, before the end of the year, I'll be going back over there to talk about the, uh, the last uh, 20 years of John Williams's career. All right, everyone. Well, thanks so much for downloading the show. And we will be back uh, soon, I think. Now, I think the next episode that we record is going to be, I think I'm going to try to do another uh, genre film uh, for for October and uh, tentatively have plans to record an episode on the Fritz Lang film, The Testament of Dr. Mabusa. So we'll see. Uh, hopefully I can get that one done in a couple weeks before Halloween and uh, we'll see you then. <laughs>